0: Hey everyone, this is the Empire and the Deep State series. I'm Ben Norton. I'm joined by my co hosts, Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis. This is part four, and we are focused in this episode on theory. So don't turn it off immediately. I, this, this, this will be a theory episode, but I do think it's important, and I, I'm, we're going to try to make it interesting. I hope it won't be too boring. I think to understand the history of the U.S. Empire and Deep State and and all of the other concepts we'll be discussing in the series. It is important to theoretically ground our understanding. And in your book, Aaron, I mean, of course, you do have a Ph.D. in political scientists in political science. I won't hold it too much against you. you. You do have a very heavy theoretical basis to your book. But like I said, I do think that's important to understand the history. And in your book, you also you posit the, uh, this debate between hegemony and empire, right? Like what's the difference between hegemony and empire? They're not exactly the same thing. Something can be hegemonic, but not imperial. And of course, empires tend to be hegemonic. So talk about what the difference is between hegemony and empire. And this will feed into our discussion of the kind of theoretical distinctions between different academic disciplines and political disciplines. So we'll talk about Marxist ideas of imperialism, dependency theory. We'll talk about foreign policy realism. We'll talk about international relations scholarship. This all fits together. But you started with this question of what is the difference between hegemony and empire?
1: Right. And this comes out of the fact that when you understand how dominant the U.S. has been since the end of World War II, then the omission of these discussions from political discourse and from the, uh, the academy it jumps out at you because I worked in politics in different ways uh, for my you know, volunteering and so on, and was immersed in political discussions since I was a little kid because my mom worked for a congressman, and I was a political science major in college. And I don't think when I was studying political science that the concepts of imperialism and hegemony came up very much in my in my courses because these are you know generally older men who have become established as professors at a major university. And this issue of hegemony is just not put out there. Hegemony in the generic sense just means sort of a, a dominant position or dominance over a particular realm of human activity. So it could be you could define that in all sorts of ways. You could say that Darwinian evolution is hegemonic in in biology or, or, or something to that effect. Or you could make it say that, you know, the. Um, Copernican view of the universe is hegemonic at whatever times, so on. You could say that it that way, but when you're talking about international politics and hegemony, you're talking about dominance over uh, an international scene of some kind. So it might be regional hegemony, like for example, the Romans and the Greeks were fighting for especially hegemony over the Mediterranean Sea, you know, those regions and the battles with Tunisia with the Romans were really about hegemony for the Roman Empire versus this up-and-coming commercial potential empire in the Mediterranean. So this is uh, something that comes up a good bit in terms of like empires competing with each other and civilizations who have conflicts with each other. And this could be, it's characterized in the literature and political science and elsewhere, social science. There's a tension between dominance and coercion and hegemony is thought of to typically involve both. So if you're going to, if an entity is going to maintain its hegemony, there's going to be a lot of relations with other countries that are more or less consensual, where elites from the weaker nation are friendly with the elites in the dominant nation, and they, because they get along well and do business together and get things from each other, it actually supports the hegemony of the hegemon. Okay, and imperialism can can be something similar, like an a, a, a hegemony of Whatever great power or the great the empire of a very powerful country, these can be used. They can be used interchangeably, um, but the, the coercion aspect of hegemony is more emphasized when you talk about empire. And there's debates in literature about what exactly is the definition of empire. What exactly is the definition of hegemony? I think that the uh the realist school in. US foreign policy and so on, these people emphasize dominance and coercion. Uh, realists in international relations, which is a subdiscipline of political science, or different comparative politics people uh, can have a kind of more materialist basis for what they think. and then they're going to emphasize the coercive aspects, especially of uh, hegemony, of, of having you know control over a particular realm. Other people wanna emphasize the consensus parts of it. These are people, especially like the, what would be called neoliberal institutionalists and they are different from the realists in that they think that this cooperation uh, that is that can be pursued under a hegemonic regime is really good and that it also gives rise to international institutions that can be even more important than states. That's kind of the argument of in- institutionalists Uh, in political science or sometimes called um, neoliberal institutionalists, institutionalists, but it's not quite the same as uh, neoliberalism in the economic world. So here again, liberal and neoliberal, uh, these are some of the most kind of complicated and confusing terms because sometimes they can mean different things or they can mean opposite things. uh, If you're thinking of like liberal versus like uh, Henry Wallace Franklin Roosevelt, that sort of American liberalism versus classical liberalism, which is pretty close to libertarianism. They mean very different things, right? So, the the people in political science who emphasize coercion or the consensual aspects of hegemony are the neo real neoliberals, and they are they have a, a a position where they're arguing that that, for example, that a, a Meri- that a, a hegemon can be perceived as legitimate by other countries because their, their rule by and large is considered good for everybody. And so this is a, if you can create that notion, you're on your way to having, you know, a lasting powerful influence over other, over other countries. So this is different from empire, which is more about dominance over other countries. Just this, this definition is also disputed but it by and, and pre- presented differently by different people. But uh, the, maybe one characteristic that is kind of common among political scientists and social scientists, if they do talk about empire, they'll say that empire is really an empire dominates the external and internal politics of subject nations, where perhaps hegemony is more control of the international system, but not in a coercive way where you're literally dominating other states that might be one way that they sort of characterize it but the <clears throat> one major takeaway is that this is a very very important issue to understanding power and politics in the world and it's very underemphasized in us academics uh you know in us in academia because uh, america is the empire that pretends it. it's not an empire and i think that that trickles down to <clears throat> the way that university professors Uh, think about things, and the way that they write about things, if they want to get published in the top journals, if they want to get good tenure positions, you don't want to be, you know, Gramsci, or Karl Marx, or uh, C. Wright Mills, or Noam Chomsky, uh, if you're looking to ingratiate yourself with the academic establishment. And so this is why I took a good amount of time in the book, not, you know, uh, 10 pages or so, or maybe less, probably less than that, but hashing all this stuff out after doing all this research on it, because you're supposed to cover these things in a dissertation. You're supposed to have a lit review, literature review. And my subject is vast and huge and dealt with a lot of areas. So the lit review for, uh, I had to do a lot of it. And for Empire versus Hegemony, spent a good bit of time on this, just to hash out these major definitions and place them really at the center so that going into the book, people, if, if they haven't studied this stuff in depth, will be able to get a good understanding of what what we're talking about with imperialism and with hegemony. Ultimately, I come to the conclusion or, or I surmise that the way you want to describe the U.S. is that is as pursuing a policy of imperial hegemony since the end of World War Two and that they've tried to manage that. And then that's been the key thing to understand about the U.S. and U.S. politics, especially international politics.
0: And Aaron, let's talk about the different some of the main theorists and schools of thought Within in the discussions of imperialism, uh, you know, in your book, you you mentioned the historical materialists, and they, of course, influenced the Marxist. You, you talk about John Hobson, who he articulated a theory of imperialism in the first decade of the of the, the 1900s, arguing about how imperialism was related to capitalism, but that thesis was later updated by Lenin most famously in Imperialism the highest stage of capitalism in 1916 in which Lenin emphasized the the fact that imperialism is integral to capitalism that in fact imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism they are not separable as systems and he emphasized the role of finance capital and the hegemony of finance capital representing you know certain national uh the interests of certain national bourgeois classes in in pushing imperialism there's this also gives rise to dependency theory maybe you can summarize dependency theory and then of course you have in the uh you know the 1990s and early 21st century you have the rise of the so-called post-marxist heart and negri they have this famous book empire where they conceive of imperialism as this kind of vague idea that's that is a uh, you know, international, but it's not rooted in a particular nation state. And it's uh, it's much, much more of like a um, globalized neoliberalism. So talk about the different schools of thought on imperialism and how that influenced your analysis of the tripartite state in the U.S. deep state.
1: So the people who are perhaps best situated to really talk about empire and to to get into the heart of it and, and say, this is what this is the way we got to think of things are, because civilization and empire are pretty much, they go hand in hand. Civilization uh, is, you, know, you have city-states starting out and they eventually, because they master agriculture and they become more complex, they expand and they incorporate other uh, hunter-gatherer societies or nomadic societies into their sphere of influence or they clash with them. I mean, that's a big part of the history of Chinese civilization, which is a history of imperial expansion uh, of a sort. And, and in the Chinese case, their uh, historical enemies for centuries were the nomadic people of the Asian steppe who were often on, on horseback versus sort of expansionist Chinese farmers, right? And so this that's why some of your earliest sort of formulations of um, of, of realist thought are not necessarily in the West, but like some Chinese strategists and military strategists like Sun Tzu or uh, various legalist scholars who are just going to realistically look at the realities of human conflict and try to break them down into uh, axioms and other prescriptions for leaders in terms of how they can uh, wo- operate in such a world, in a, in a world as it is, dealing with the harsh reality of the world. And so rea- realists, the realist school in the West in international relations, and, and they have some, you know, bleed over to like realists doing historical work, but these are people who believe that like the state is uh, seeks to maximize its power in a, in a world system characterized by anarchy. So there's really nobody. It, it's, self, it's a self-help world. There's no big entity that's going to like save you from the other more powerful states. <clears throat> You've got to save yourself. So states band together to balance more powerful actors, to hold on to any amount of sovereignty, or they try to overwhelm and dominate other countries to the extent that they can. This is uh, sort of the wheelhouse of realism. And these scholars have a history in the US. Going back, especially to once the US starts to become a more expansionist power, so it it sort of fits and starts in the mid-1800s after the US acquires Mexico and Mexican territory on the West Coast. They immediately go into Tokyo Bay, and they want this overseas empire. And later people write about this, like towards the end of the 1800s, you have people like uh, Mahan, uh, who was writing about how the U.S. needed to become a maritime power, that any great power is going to have to be a naval power. And so the U.S. should go this way. This is kind of like early realist thinking in the United States. But there's a longer tradition of it in Europe because the European countries are always at war with their with with peer competitors. Okay, that's kind of the nature of that's the essence of European history. A lot of fighting among countries that have some sort of parity against each other and so they just fight and fight and fight and this sort of fuels the development of of more sophisticated kind of political systems and technology and economics and uh, it sets the stage for European imperialism because they got so good at organizing for war and, and conquest that it sort of led naturally to colonialism in some ways and So the realists, but the realists in America emerge in a more prominent role once the U.S. itself enters that kind of a stage, which entailed the elimination of the frontier and really the total subjugation of the indigenous population in the United States, which really is wrapped up by about the end of the 1800s. And at that point, you have more people strategizing about how to become a dominant international power. And that's the direction that the U.S. heads off towards. Uh, instead of reforming its political institutions in the wake of financial panics at the end of the 1800s. Instead, they go for expansion, which means you acquire resources and markets uh, in the the international scene and the places that were nearby and kind of vulnerable for the U.S., sort of nearby, sort of not, Spanish. So they go after the Philippines and Cuba and that's sort of But they and they had gone after Hawaii, you know, a few years before the Spanish-American War, you know, in in the decade before the Spanish-American War. And this was an example of the U.S. starting to enter this this realm of international competition where realism is uh, the main mode of analysis, where you're looking at other states and assessing their power and figuring out how you can maximize your own power and go about it that way. So there's there's that school in U.S. foreign policy. And these people can explain realism or imperialism and hegemony really well because they sort of think every state has to go for this. You sort of, the structure of the system compels you to realistically look out for your national security interests and so on, which makes sense in a defensive sense because you don't want to be dominated by other nations. But of course, that same logic can fuel your own conquest and expansionism because, you know, above all else, you think like, well, if we don't have as much power as we possibly have, then maybe we'll be vulnerable to some other uh, forces or or countries who who do have power, and so we've got to we've got to do this. We've got to like pursue this empire because it's that's just the way the world works. It's a pity, but we got to do it anyway. Okay, that might be the way some people would would think about it. Now, these so these people are they kind of like embrace realism for what it is. They don't spend too much time looking at the internal politics of of countries. And some of these guys have very good analysis when they're realistic about it. And they some of them do actually talk about things that are relevant to what I would be writing about the internal composition of the state. Uh, For example. Uh, Hans Morgenthau wrote about the dual state himself. He wrote about how when politics becomes securitized, as happens in every dictatorship, you have a bent towards the creation of a kind of dual state, like a dictatorship that emerges and everything gets subordinated to politics and expertise of people in foreign policy, which was happening with the State Department purges in the U.S. in the 1950s, that these are kind of consequences of this. And so he's kind of warning about some of these dangers of securitized politics, even though he's a realist who's really, you know, supposed to be security above all. He also recognizes the dark side of it. Fast forward to today, one of the most prescient critics of U.S. imperialism and the perils of what the U.S. was pursuing in terms of power politics is John Mearsheimer, who pretty much predicted exactly what was what was going on with Ukraine. And if you could look back at, you know, 2014, 2015, it's funny because you can see John Mearsheimer, who's just a, a, a realist who is not at all a leftist. He just writes about realistic politics in the international scene and power politics. And he said that, you know, there's no way Russia is going to accept a Ukraine being turned into a militarized, you know, bastion of the United States right on its own border, that the U.S. is going to wreck Ukraine by doing this. And it ended up he ended up being proven correct about this. Ukraine's economy is devastated and a lot of people are dying there. And it's really terrible and it's totally predictable. And it was predicted also by John Pilger, who wrote in The Guardian just a couple months after the coup saying, like, you know, this is really they're really screwing the Ukrainians. And if Putin uh, does steps into this role as the international villain by attacking the Ukraine, then the West is going to depict him as the villain of all villains and so on. And they will totally omit their own role in the coup that they staged, uh, you know, which has brought all this about. So people, you can be a realist and, and look at this real world situation like John Mearsheimer and come to this conclusion. And you can be a leftist like John Pilger and realize the same thing because they're really looking at the same kind of political situations. So you can have a, you can look at these things from a different, from different perspectives, even almost opposite perspectives. But if you want to be tethered to the real world, then you're going to notice that there are going to be consequences that are predictable for certain actions. And so even if you're a leftist, like Pilger, you want to ground your analysis in realism when you think about it, because other, who would argue against that? Whatever the problems are with certain people who've called themselves realists over the years, who is going to say, like, "Oh, realism is bad? But that's sort of some of the arguments that you've seen from liberals saying, like, well, John Mearsheimer, he just thinks that everything is all cold and all about power and security, but he doesn't see these, like, uh, you know, mode, these, these really noble ideals that guide foreign policy, he doesn't understand like how important sovereignty is. But of course, you know, if you're halfway in at all you realize how ridiculous that is, because what sort of, uh, you know, ethos or creed that the that these liberals support would like justify, you know, staging a coup, you know, including the use of Nazis, for example, to install a regime that you would like, like, that's no, there's no liberal that can defend that. So what do they do? They just say, oh, that didn't happen. Didn't happen. We're the good guys. Putin doesn't respect sovereignty. Mearsheimer's cynical. Uh, hmm. We need to send more weapons over there, right? So this well, is like, these guys are important for understanding hegemony and, the, and imperialism realistically.
0: Well, you know who can also come to that same conclusion, even without the theoretical basis, is the former U.S. ambassador to Russia and current CIA director, William Burns. I mean, it's incredible how, speaking of erasing this history, how little this this diplomatic cable is known that is called Niet means nyet that's no means no russia's nato enlargement red lines this is a u.s state department cable we have from 2008 formerly confidential written by former u.s ambassador to russia william burns in which he says very clearly of course we have this only thanks to wikileaks and this is why journalist julian assange is being tortured in a british dungeon right now and is going to be extradited to the united states but in this cable, we see that, again, current CIA director, former U.S. ambassador to Russia, William Burns, wrote very clearly that the, the, uh, you, that if Ukraine becomes part of NATO, as was promised in the Bucharest Summit in 2008, he said, quote, In Ukraine, these include fears that the issue could potentially split the country in two, leading to violence or even, some claim, civil war which would force Russia to decide whether to intervene. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you don't even have to be a realist or certainly a leftist to understand this. You can be a U.S. ambassador. But of course, if certain decision makers in Washington don't like what you're saying, they're going to ignore your warning. But anyway, um, Seamus, I don't want to get too far adrift here. Seamus, I know you wanted to to to, uh, chime in here specifically about the uh, different schools of thought about imperialism.
2: Yeah, so I think you did a great job laying out uh you know the more general arc of thought around imperialism. And I think this will bring us sort of full circle back to the Marxist tradition, specifically um, the the dependency theorists. But you you started out with John Hobson, who was a who was a British theorist. And as much as Lenin is the most famous or you know the, the most uh the most focused on imperialist theorist, I think uh he was Heavily, heavily influenced by two theorists, uh, Rudolf Hilferding, I believe, and then John Hobson. And Hobson really lays out a a way of thinking about this that plays a huge role in a lot of the thought about it later. That I think uh, sort of predicted the way that things would play out, and is less reliant on sort of the monopoly capital model that that Lenin lays out. Not that he's gotten it wrong either, but people do sort of rag on hobson and specifically the way he lays it out is that um looking at turn of the century turn of the 20th century uh england he wrote about how there's underconsumption so basically as elites in country uh, expropriate wealth the domestic workers are making goods that then they can't afford to purchase the value back of uh, you know to to make it super reductive and so there's some excess of money there's underconsumption and the elites have too much money to burn, essentially. And they gotta find an outlet for it. And where they find their outlet is abroad. They turn to the colonies, they pour money into infrastructure and new businesses, foreign direct investment as we know it today, and that gives them an outlet. And they don't just do it to put park their money somewhere. You, you only invest if you in some way profit. And so one person that you didn't uh, bring up, but that is sort of the, The counterpoint to the left tendency in imperialism is Joseph Schumpeter, who is a economist, and the way he sees imperialism is as this sort of aberration or uh, uh, Aaron, you refer to liberals seeing uh, a lot of the the state crimes. Similarly, where he sees imperialism as this sort of pre-modern or, or, you know, uh, uh, before our current more enlightened stage, it's some feudal, uh, you know, uh, leftover that comes through and that isn't actually necessary for the system, Um, which I think Michael Parenti lays out really well the way that it might not be necessary that our Western companies could survive without their third world investments, for example, but that doesn't mean it's gonna stop them. Rich people have no problem. They they might have, you know, Jeff Bezos has enough, but he keeps going anyway. So it functions in a way where maybe you can look at it and say, well, it's not necessary and we could get rid of imperialism. So it must not be innate to the system but it is an inevitable and it occurs uh, without fail throughout the history of this, of the last several centuries in a very specific way. And so I I just wanted to sort of talk a little bit more about that because Hobson specifically calls imperial or financiers and heavy industry. So what we call the military industrial complex, as Aaron, as you pointed out, some theorists tend to not look enough at the internal politics that he, he developed a theory very early on without being a Marxist as to how the political economy plays out. And the more that you have imperial output, the more you need a war machine, which is inevitably going to warp your system more and require you to, as we see today in America, it's exactly what happens. Um, but basically they function as the quote unquote, uh, economic tap root, tap of imperialism or the governor of the engine. And as we talked about on part one, uh, the other part there is nationalism, or uh, you know, in a, in a more dark way, sort of jingoism among the people. Uh, but as we talked about, there's nothing inherently wrong with sort of natural national self-interest and caring about you know the fate of your nation rather than being purely internationalist. A lot of people have been able to be liberated through that path, and there's nothing inherently bad about nationalism. What matters is the way it's instrumentalized, and so what I think a lot of Uh, The left, especially as you as you mentioned, people like Hart and Negri and now uh, also David Harvey uh, tend to sort of miss the way that it's not necessarily just this inevitable thing that the the people just by self-asserting will also be pointed in that direction. It's a very uh, intentional and state based action that specific financial interests because they have the surplus of capital. Uh, have the drive to do, and I would just point out that uh, in in the sort of in between zones here, before we turn to dependency theorists, uh, recognizing that as a an issue of an outlet uh, kind of recalls what we were talking about in terms of frontier theory, the Frederick Turner theory of of the sort of endless frontier in America, uh, and then later on during World War II, um, Vannevar Bush, who was like a big a big researcher. Wrote this big paper where he says that science is the endless frontier, and for the Pentagon, science really means new weapons of of destruction and and ways to impose our will on the world, and that is itself a frontier. And so I think you know, Aaron, if you want to talk more a little bit about how the U.S. empire is unique, I would just point out the way that the frontier here fo- functions as a new outlet parked in our own backyard. And so the way that, like we were talking about in part three, the financial system functions to essentially recycle money. And because other countries have to purchase our treasury bonds to balance their payments, uh, they are essentially funding our budget deficits and by extension funding our 800 Pentagon bases around the world. And that has been sort of an ingenious way to people point out the way that Lenin or Hobson got imperialist theory wrong But, and as we can talk about, dependency theorists uh, have taken on the same attacks, but in a lot of the ways they've been proven right, uh, specifically in the way that American policymakers recognized some of the contradictions in having to use an external market as your outlet and figured out a way to essentially park the wealth in our own backyard by recycling it back and turning it into, even for consumers, home ownership and credit extension, that has created this consumer market even as we've deindustrialized. And that sets us apart from the English Empire, because the, the wealth isn't just sort of going outward and then confronting us in the form of like the world wars. It's coming back to us and it's turned into this consumer base that sort of keeps the whole system alive. So with that, you know, having talked a little bit about the the frontier theory stuff, uh, if we could just sort of turn a little bit, Aaron, if you want to talk about the, the Marxist theory of depend, dependency theory, uh, what that has to do with the third world, and maybe the ways that, that people see that as incorrect, or, or in what way, I guess, where you fall on it. Because I, I felt in, in the book, you, you lay out some of the problems with it, especially leading up to the 90s. But I'm curious where you fall in terms of uh, between, as you talked about, some of the accuracy of, of uh, realist theory and then in this, you know, more imperial um, um, or historical materialist tradition where you fall within that.
1: Well, you also have the liberals who have a different take on, you mentioned one of them. I put Schumpeter in the liberal camp and it's been a while since I've even gone back and looked at, at Schumpeter, but I think you pretty much summed it up that he talked about imperialism as this kind of atavistic primitive drive uh, that would be, that eventually capitalism would get rid of that because of a uh, the beneficial effects of just commerce and doing business and people would kind of evolve and then imperialism and war would kind of fade away. This was a sort of utopian liberalism uh, that, uh, that characterized, you know, some segment of the, uh, you know, scholarly community. Back then, it, other people who would fall in a liberal camp like Kant, you know, the, the philosopher, and he wrote about like democratic peace theory. And he argued that like once all countries were democracies, you would have uh, world peace because democracies won't fight against each other, even if they fight against other non democracies. That there's something about being a democracy. I mean, this is really some of the more ludicrous stuff that you come across uh, in political science, but it's kind of like it's useful for American propaganda purposes. So it's like something that has some sort of footprint. Another guy, Michael Doyle, is like an updated version of this. And they don't see the, they, they don't see the, imperialism that was with capitalism really from the beginning. I mean, the beginning of capitalism is the, the, I, I would mark it as the enclosure movement and the expansion that that required because you're kicking a lot of people off the land and those are population pressures. You're basically saying, sorry, the sheep need this land more than you do because we need a textile industry because some people who had the political power to like make this happen have managed to privatize the commons this privatizing of whatever is in the public realm is the beginning of is right there at the beginning of capitalism. It's a, it begins with a heist of sorts and then that causes population pressures. And so they go out and colonize and dominate and slaughter the Irish. And then there's only so much land in Ireland. So why not just keep going West The Massachusetts Bay company and the uh, Virginia company. And they're producing, they're out there looking to make a buck, but also relieving population pressures because there's less land now. the pilgrims, the issue with the pilgrims and the reason that they had to go to Holland was because uh, there was not enough land. And so, I mean, they even wrote like I think the governor of the uh, of the May on the Mayflower, one of the top guys like Bradford, I think was his name. He wrote, if I recall correctly, that like, oh, yeah, England in England, a sheep is worth more than a man. You know, and that's a reference to the fact that they had taken all the land and, and forced people out that way. So the idea that 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 imperialism you know even even uh lenin saying that material that imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism it's i think that it, in a way that suggests that like there was some capitalism that evolved into uh imperialism when it really it's been right there from the beginning or, or very close thereafter it's it, you you create pressures that require kind of a uh, expansion and so the idea hobson's more material is not coming at it from a liberal point of view he's actually a materialist of sorts he's pointing to economic motivations and the fact that underconsumption does create tensions and problems which it did in the united states and the closing of the with the closing of the frontier you don't have the frontier as a safety valve or as a pressure valve for other forces in society that are not brought into the capitalist economy and the emerging industrial economy And this, so the choice was for policymakers in the United States, do you improve the domestic economy? Do you improve living standards and consumption of the actual workers? Or do you go overseas in search of new markets and new valuable raw materials and so on? And that's the decision that they go for. And so these, the historical material, the liberals are kind of in denial about the way that democracy and liberalism are inextricable from imperialism. I mean, that's one of the key defining characteristics of liberals: is denial of imperialism and coer- the coercion, the violence, the expropriation that uh, is is a requisite, a prerequisite for the liberal the, the liberal project, as it were. Whereas the historical materialists put this right at the center of their analysis, and this ends up being, you know, quite. Uh, useful in explaining politics and history, because it turns out that the people who have decisive influence in politics and thus in historical outcomes are people who have uh, wealth, that wealth is pretty much inextricable from power uh, in a capitalist society, and that this is going to make economic issues the driving force behind foreign policy and, and, and imperialism, which capitalism seems to not be able to exist without it. And so uh, for the, in, in the U.S., you have uh, a denial kind of of, uh, I- of imperialism by and large. And the idea that, you know, there's some more radical strains that emerge in the 20th century uh, of analysis, like people like Charles Beard, who we'll talk about later when we get to historians. And, but by the 30s and 40s, you kind of have some critiques of, of capitalism and, and World War I is viewed differently in the aftermath than it was beforehand where basically all of society was mobilized behind the U.S. getting into World War I. And you kind of have a a mainstream skepticism about imperialism and big business and capitalism and wep- weapons makers and so on. But the, lib- the, the liberal class seeks to, and this works in academia too, they seek to minimize and obfuscate and work around the margins of some of these problems. And the way that they do that after World War II which is this involves government people and people in academia, you know, kind of working together in that way. And that's with this modernization theory, the idea that like these, we can have progress in the formerly colonized world with modernization principles where you'll have uh, the state kind of guiding development, but in order to allow these countries to develop uh, technologically, economically, politically, and that eventually they'll become just like, just like us, if we do this. But this doesn't end up happening. These countries do not become prosperous. And so, in order to explain why they don't become prosperous uh, in this system after World War II, why the global South is still struggling and exploited, is uh, you have people like uh, the dependency theorists, okay? Like I think Gunt was the the name of one of them, maybe, uh, and uh, other people who are writing in this era about, they come up with this idea of dependency, basically that you have a a core, imperial core and local the local scene the is the periphery right and this is where alliances between the elites in these colonized or imperialized countries are friendly with elites in the in the metropole you know in the empire in the imperial capitals okay so the people out in the hinterland are friendly with the people in the core the elites and this is how imperialism sort of operates And this modernization, because of modernization theory, it doesn't take into account the unequal, um, you know, exchange value of the things that are produced in poorer countries, in formerly colonized countries, that for a number of, or the impact of debt, the impact of covert operations, there's all sorts of things that the dependency theorists were pointing out were being left out by modernization theory. And the most obvious one, when you read people who are like critics of modernization theory and dependency theory as well, people like Sam Huntington, writing political order and changing societies, writes that, uh, you know, that uh, there are military coups that, that will come about if you try to modernize too much, but they ignore the fact that the US is behind these. They just say, oh, if you try to modernize too much, then the military might exercise a veto and the military can have a veto coup and that that's why you have uh, a slide towards dictatorship in like Latin America, for example. The dependency theorists were probably correct in most of their analyses, but in the 70s and 80s, especially because capitalism is ascendant and because you have actual economic progress and wealth acquired in places like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and Hong Kong, the so-called tiger nations, Academics in the u s. say, "Well, see, look at these places. they're prosperous, and so it is possible uh, to become prosperous if you're not uh, you know, a European country. And so therefore, dependency theory is bad. But really, it it explained a lot back then. And still to this day, it actually holds up pretty well.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I- ignoring the the role of the so-called tiger nations within the imperialist world system, the fact that, you know, Japan and South Korea have effectively been u s. proxies since you know 1945 in the case of Japan 1950 51 in the case of South Korea I mean it's it's an infantile analysis but I I do want to talk more about dependency theory and I know Seamus wanted to chime in but I wanted to before we move away from the classical um, theories of imperialism and the Marxist and Marxist Leninist theories I think it's good to have a, a also a better understanding of the internal debates within the the Marxist tradition What's interesting is that you know, in the early 20th century, there was a very uh, vigorous debate about imperialism within Marxist circles, and especially that clearly intensified with the lead up to World War I. And it's very important to understand historically how integral the role of World War I was in splitting the international left and the Marxist movement in particular, we saw that the German Social Democratic Party, the SPD, a significant part of the SPD supported the voting for war credits for Germany to enter World War I. We also saw in France and other European capitals that many socialists joined in supporting their country in this inter-imperialist war. And this led to a, a split in the Second International, and the, the socialists, at that time they were all called social democrats now of course today social democrat means something very different but the socialists at that time who opposed world war 1 they became the communists we saw that the the russian social democratic labor party which was the official name became eventually the communist party of the soviet union and we saw that in germany the spd split and rosa luxemburg and karl liegnitz created the Spartacus League that became the German Communist Party. And what's interesting is if you look at the debates before World War I, many of the people who were arguing against Lenin's thesis of imperialism ended up supporting their countries in World War I. And there was most famously a debate between Karl Kautsky and and Lenin. And Lenin articulated these criticisms of Karl Kautsky in this essay. It's called uh, The Renegade Kautsky. And basically, Kautsky had this thesis, which interestingly, at the time, it was a completely obviously wrong thesis, but there are elements today that, that have, I think, been actually in some ways proven, not correct, but have, been, have proven partially correct. Kautsky had this idea that imperialism was a particular stage of capitalism, but that capitalism was not inherently based on imperialism and war. And... and It might be no surprise that Karl Kautsky, at the beginning of World War I, he supported Germany against Russia, and eventually he came to criticize the war, but he did begin supporting World War I, and he was a vicious critic of the Bolsheviks. And Karl Kautsky had this thesis that has been translated as ultra-imperialism or hyper-imperialism. Some people say super-imperialism, although that's different from Michael Hudson's concept of super-imperialism, which is particularly... the the concept of us super imperialism and the role of the dollar and finance capital but and i think people who have you know seen my interviews with michael hudson that can be more familiar with that but karl kautsky articulated this idea that basically that the advanced capitalist countries would create an imperialist cartel and in order to prevent war between them they would basically form this supranational capitalist institution to better carve up the rest of the world in the colonies. And if you look at I understand why he would have thought that if you look at the Berlin Conference, I mean, there were these cases, sykes Pico, of course, sykes Pico happened after he articulated this. But there were cases of the European colonialist powers meeting together and and carving up parts of the global south, figuring out how they were going to who was going to get what colony and Obviously, I mean, there are elements of that that make sense, but clearly his analysis was completely wrong because in World War I and World War II, the advanced capitalist nations basically destroyed each other, killing millions of people in these inter imperialist wars. And in that sense, Lenin was right. Now, there was another school of thought that was not necessarily the same as the school of thought that became the Marxist Leninists, which There's a reason that throughout the Global South, Marxism-Leninism became the dominant form of Marxism, as opposed to the old Orthodox school of Marxism represented by people like Karl Kautsky, who was jokingly called the Pope of Marxism, partially as an insult. Um, But the the reason, of course, Marxism-Leninism became the dominant ideology in the Global South is because it recognized the centrality of imperialism in the analysis of capitalism and the centrality of finance capital. And I'll come to that in a second, but there was also the contrib- contribution of people like Rosa Luxemburg. And I think Rosa Luxemburg actually does deserve some credit for uh, emphasizing certain elements that were always in the Marxist critique. If you go back and read you know, Marx, and especially if you read um, you know, uh, even parts of capital where he talks about primitive accumulation, uh, um, Rosa Luxemburg articulated this analysis that one of the, the elements of imperialism is that capitalism necessarily expands to, to basically take over non-capitalist uh, economic relations and force them into, into capitalism. And she specifically focused on the fact that a huge part of imperialism is gaining control of markets. Because... There's this fundamental problem which is similar to John Hobson's analysis of underconsumption or overproduction, right? In in inside a capitalist nation, you have this contradiction where, you know, Marx articulated the idea of a miseration of the working class. The conditions of the working class are going to decline, and at the same time you have a capitalist class that becomes richer and richer with the e- extraction of surplus value. So, If the working class cannot afford these consumer goods that are produced by a capitalist nation, it has to go find new markets, or it has to increase wages. And if they increase wages, they're going to lose surplus value. So instead, they go look for foreign markets in the global south. And if we go back to this graph of dependency theory, this I think really articulates the centrality of exporting goods from the imperial core to the periphery, because it's not just about exploiting the natural resources of the periphery. That's obviously a key part of it, but it's also about exploiting the markets of the periphery. And we see this where the U.S. is actually a major agricultural exporter. And why is the U.S. exporting agricultural goods to Haiti? Haitian farmers should be able to produce their own food. But, of course, it's about extracting resources from the Global South and controlling the markets of the Global South, because all of that surplus value in the Imperial core needs to be invested somewhere, and they can invest it in the Global South. Uh, and Rosa Luxemburg emphasized how this led to the destruction of feudal relations in, in countries that were largely based in agriculture and you know this kind of peasant style agriculture with large landlords and forcing those countries into capitalist development. And we see this very clearly in a country like India, right? Where a huge part of India's development, and especially since the neoliberal turn of the Congress party in the 1990s, has been basically destroying feudal conditions in the countryside and pushing farmers who had subsistent farmer relations in these kind of either feudal or even communal style uh, economies in these local villages well, they're pushed off their ancestral family land, and then they're pushed into the urban uh, slums where they work for wages. So this is part of this analysis that I think actually Rosa Luxemburg, in many ways, she kind of uh, she was very prescient in understanding the rise of dependency theory. Without understanding it in the way of dependency dependency theory that we see it now, I think she really understood how cent- how central control of markets and the destruction of, of, of non-capitalist relations in especially rural areas was to understanding imperialism. The last thing I'll say here is that another reason I think that Lenin's analysis is still so prescient today is because he emphasized the role of finance capital because of course finance capital was something relatively new in capitalism. I think you're right, Aaron, that the entire history of capitalism is a history of imperialism, but Lenin articulated a different understanding of imperialism because Lenin obviously understood that there always were empires, clearly the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, but he was arguing a specific definition of imperialism based on finance capital. And Lenin, I think, correctly argued that when you have the concentration of capital and this, and this crisis of overconsumpt- uh, overproduction and underconsumption in the imperial core, well, another way for capitalists to invest that surplus value is not only to send it into the into the imperial, core, uh, the imperial, sorry, the periphery away from the imperial core into the periphery, but it's also investing that in finance capital. And that was one of the things that Lenin saw that a lot of this capital was being concentrated in finance, not in production. And in that sense, Lenin was extremely prescient. And I think that in many ways, uh, Michael Hudson continues Lenin, Lenin's analysis with, by understanding that with the financialization of capitalism, it, that's how you get to the ultra monopoly capitalism we're talking today, where capitalists don't even invest their capitalism in production in the, in the global South. They're no longer investing in sweatshops, right? They're no longer pushing f- farmers out of the countryside to work for wages in sweatshops. Instead, it's all finance capital. And I think that really explains that although dependency theory is absolutely still a valuable uh model for understanding you know all you have to do is look at these countries that are based on extraction of of raw materials they export their raw materials to the imperial core where the goods are processed and then sent back to the in the periphery where they're you know consumed well if you also throw in the element of finance capital i think that really explains where we are today
2: right i i think you raised some super important stuff in there for one i mean uh just to talk a little bit more about michael parenti because he's uh you know just in terms of the way he puts it he might not be the most in-depth mathematically i think there's some good work by uh by zach cope on that um but specifically uh against empire his book i was just looking through it today for for this um for one you brought up india uh in about two two and a half centuries of exploitation between britain in India, as you brought up, not only do they get uh, brought into the urban centers, they develop a textile industry, they export all of their goods to Britain, that's where their consumptive center is, then the British textile industry becomes profitable. And what happens, the British suddenly care less about free trade than about their domestic markets, they put in protectionism, and India is the textile industry's close. And it sends everybody who had been, you know, uh, trying to survive out in the more of a, a peasant class back out to the land with with less land to go around. Now, when he talks about uh, Aaron, you you mentioned something that I think is pretty parallel to this, the question of development theory uh, and, and specifically like modernization. When we talk about countries as being, quote unquote, underdeveloped, the way Parenti puts it is that underdevelopment is a state of development. It's a very intentional. It's not oh they're lagging behind. It's not a lack of productivity. It is very intentionally set into these conditions because it's overexploitation. To... He says exactly. He, there's a wonderful the the yellow Parenti lectures. They're the the countries are not poor. You don't go to poor countries to make money it's just the people that are poor there are there's plenty of material wealth and and specifically resources to go around but they are overexploited not underdeveloped but it's also i mean there there was a whole you know split of division of labor and and cultures and everything that when uh as he he quotes you know when marx and engels say that the bourgeoisie has to make the world in their own image what do they mean by that they mean that that they have to turn abroad and they try to expand out, as you said, to control every single market. And so that breaks down self-sufficient peoples and makes them dependent It makes them in like dependent, like in Cuba, on monocrop economies. And that creates huge problems when market fluctuations happen. There's a huge problem with that today in the coffee market, all across, uh, especially South America, where so much, so, so many economies and, and just monocrop markets are based around coffee that these massive fluctuations that are allowed now uh, since this trade treaty broke off in 2003, it causes all kinds of problems where you can't even recoup the amount of money that you need to take care of your children who worked for free to grow these crops. But I I did want to just go to one other thing because you're talking about dependency theory that I think the left critique of it and the left critique of the, you know, the graph you showed is that, it doesn't tend to, as much as the control over markets matters, what doesn't matter is the direction of the flows. And so it's no longer that the the core produces the goods and ships them out. It's now that, like you were saying, finance capital is a way, as, um, as Henry Magdoff put it, who was one of the major policymakers, he was at the heart, he worked for Henry Wallace, who we talked about earlier. He was really at the heart of developing this US economic system during the war. He later became probably the best... You know, it's 60s and 70s U.S. theorist of this, where he pointed out that finance capital specifically is the best way to create and, and expropriate profit and create profit out of out of nothing out, uh, to basically take wealth from the global south and bring it to the north without needing an industrialized economy and without needing the sort of direct development theory, uh, it, you know, question of of um of having your industry and then exporting the goods. Because today. How do you, how else, I mean, and that's, I mean, as Aaron pointed out, I mean, liberals cannot explain this problem. Why does there, why why is there more capital coming into the U.S. and also more goods? Why do we purchase all these things? And you raised a great point, a big anomaly there is food sovereignty. But outside of agriculture, the U.S. ships in more goods. It it pays out all this money for, for the Pentagon, but also just for consumer goods. And it has all this capital come in and and enriches Wall Street. How is that possible? It's possible because of the structure of the system, specifically, as you sort of alluded to, global labor arbitrage. And and that is specifically categorized, or or, sorry, characterized as as the free movement of capital, but not of labor. And I think that the best example of that is along the U.S.-Mexico border. You have cities like Juarez that are these exclusive economic zones. Uh, and at most trade treaties now, especially things like NAFTA, create these zones that have zero tariffs, and it's very easy, it's cost-free to trade. And so that means that capital can move freely from the U.S. to Mexico to create a factory. The goods can be made and brought back with no extra costs of, of tariffs, et cetera. But when people try to cross, what happens? Cross, what happens to them? They're arrested, or they're literally hunted. And that is a very specific way that that system is meant to work so that you have wage differentials to where it's hard to calculate it but anywhere from 20 to 30 hours have to be worked in the global south for one hour worked in in the global north or in in the the first world our the us and it's aligned um european powers and then aligned east asian powers like we talked about so that is sort of the way that uh when people argue that maybe dependency theorists got it wrong, it's specifically the way that these flows went from going outward and being a, a story of dependency or, or um, yeah dependency on the global north to this financial vortex where everything gets pulled in to this American consumer class. That is the reversal that happens that makes it hard for when people like David Harvey argue about imperialism. And just in general on the left, why it's such a tough category to have analytically it's because if you categorize it one way back in 1900, the way it worked then before finance capital had fully developed, then you get to its mature stage. And then people like John Bellamy Foster at monthly review have argued, we're now in quote unquote late imperialism, which is to say that we're returning to the state as you talked about of interstate competition and of breakdown in the the unipolar world, but also just in the conditions that have created that sort of multinational cartel up to this point. And so I, I think that's what makes it such a tough issue is because if you try to categorize it one way and try to simplify it for people and, and say, oh, well, it's this flow of goods this way and flow of capital that way, and it's this dependency, it, it has reversed because it's not really dependent on, it, it, It's it's just expropriation by any means, by any mode of practice, not just through, for example, the means of production. And so once we broaden our understanding of that, I think that's really key just seeing the way that that imperialism is very flexible that it, as aaron said it's it's endemic in a way that we have to be willing to broaden but also uh see the, the very intricate differences in the way that it functions for for different empires uh, even since the the birth of capitalism but especially even across the american century
1: yeah i would to the we can talk about the structural aspects of it and the positions that it puts these countries in. And I think that that's important to do when you talk about the, the food situation with the U S the U S subsidizes agriculture to the and with knowing and Michael Hudson's done a lot of work on this, knowing that, that there are massive surpluses in the U S. So a lot of times what ends up happening in like places like Jamaica or Haiti or Honduras is dumping. They're basically like, here, here's a bunch of free food. And it's not like, the U.S. could just get rid of that food. I mean, they sell it for very—they sell it for less than it would cost to produce it, but it's for national security reasons because they actually understand that the that structural factors of the economy can be used to create the ideal conditions for capital to maximize its profits. So there's a great movie on this, uh, "Life and Debt," and uh, it's about Jamaica. And you see the way that they will that they dis- they willfully destroyed the Jamaican agricultural industry, so that people couldn't be farmers and subsist anymore. Because American stuff is so cheap, the food coming in there that you can't produce it, even with the low price of Jamaican labor, you can't grow food uh, and then sell it for less than the uh, what the Americans are dumping there for free. And so what that does is it creates a huge force. A uh, labor force that has to work for very low wages, okay, on purpose. In sweatshops. And, in sweatshops. And in Honduras, uh, okay, Haiti, for example, why did the Clinton, under Clinton, did they pursue all these policies that would make people stop having to farm? This is the reason why. Bill Clinton has said, like, oh, it was a mistake. It was, you know, it didn't work out the way we thought. Maybe they told, I mean, I can believe that they said, if you do this, it'll create these things. But like people know what they're doing when they do these things. The idea is to create, you know, an immiserated population. And whereas, you know, local farming and people producing their own food to eat is actually economic activity taking place that doesn't make anybody any money. So this is not good. Better to have these people super desperate to work for almost nothing. And then when a country try, but when Haiti has tried to change these things in the past, you know, there's been all sorts of US military interventions going back to the early part of the 20th century in Haiti. And the George, H.W. Uh, Bush overthrew the Haitian government in 1991, overthrew Aristide. we uh, f- using drug proxies, uh, you know, drug connected CIA proxies to do that. And then he comes back in the 2000s and George W. Bush overthrows him again. So it's if the structural things that the IMF is pursuing and that the U.S. Uh, you know, economic elites are pursuing in these countries, if those if the people suddenly rise up and like actually say like okay we want a different policy we're going to elect different leaders the u.s has ways of dealing with those people honduras is another example they tried to wa- raise the minimum wage uh this guy named Zelaya in like 2008 2009 was elected to try to uplift the poor people in honduras because it's the poorest country in the western hemisphere besides haiti and one of the things he wanted to do was raise the minimum wage and that angered the u.s and so he's overthrown in a coup early in obama's presidency probably just the national security state on autopilot overthrows him or maybe they just stage these things early in a president's term just to like you know see see what he's going to do see how things are going to be i don't really know but the point is that the reason that this raising the minimum wage aspect is so important in haiti or honduras is that if you they're the wage floor so like the haiti and honduras are so poor that like their super low wages kind of set the stage for everybody else. And if they raise their wages, it's a ripple effect. And then other, if they're successful with it, then other countries will pursue other economically nationalist policies. That's what we saw in the pink tide. And it all seems modest from the perspective of like people who are looking at it soberly. And in fact, you'll have, you know, people like, I am a leftist leftist in America saying like, Oh man, Lula is a, is a, is a, is a collaborator with the capitalists and so on. Uh-huh. And like, yeah, sure. He has to reach some sort of modus vivendi with people, but notice that like these people who you could call who liberals who you could say like, oh yeah, they're like a liberal pretending to be a leftist and they're, they still get overthrown. You know, Lula still got tossed in jails. Alea still got ousted. Aristide got ousted and he tried to cooperate with the IMF. So it's like, they have very little room to maneuver. And that's, that's the power of us hegemony is the fact that the fact that they create the structure where you don't have very much room to actually try to go improve the material conditions of the population. And the, um, you know, the more overtly imperialist side is like, well, if you, if you as a leader don't do what we like, we're going to send in some drug trafficking, you know, proxies to come in and destabilize your country and overthrow you. They did that to Jamaica in the seventies. They weren't successful in overthrowing Michael Mann in the seventies, but by the time, uh, the dust had settled from all their covert operations. The economy was in such bad shape that he was forced to do whatever the IMF said. And that was the end of his socialist project. So this is something that is willfully maintained a system of imperialism. And you can, by looking at these cases, you can understand the power of the the, the more things we associate more with hegemony, meaning like structural powers established internationally, but then outright imperialism where the U.S. is like, OK, you can't do that. Send in the CIA or whatever, or let's steal an election or or, or, or get just to get the outcome that we want. So this is where these these concepts are, unfortunately, timeless. And uh, I try to lay these out as best I can in the book without it being too too tedious. So it's hopefully either interesting or mercifully short if you don't think it's interesting. That was at least what I was going
0: for. <laughs>
2: Aaron, real quick, right before we, we go here, I, I just want to say, because you brought up Honduras, not only does does Hillary run the coup there, but then uh, I think Honduras is a great example of sort of the the proof that the people who say, oh, the U.S. empire used to do that stuff, not anymore. Uh, I mean, it just recently came out that, um, that uh, I forget his first, I want to say Juan Hernandez, um, the Hernandez. president of Honduras until... Um, he like he it came out that we were fully aware that he was a major drug trafficker for the region for for that entire time of his presidency. And so it's a very intentional move to go from them trying to assert food sovereignty to turning it into uh, basically this a state sponsored drug trafficking program. And uh, that is very representative of the way that these things don't change that that the US has not left these tactics behind. and. Even the more sort of uh, uh, sorted sides of it, like the drug trafficking, are still very present in the way that we approach this this sort of regime change uh, tactic or strategy. So I, I think that's a good that's a good place to maybe kind of uh, bring us to a close here. That that um, this is just sort of uh, we're, what we've been talking about this whole time is a. Nothing new. And as much as it might shift, like I was saying earlier, as much as we might need to have this broad understanding of it, it also some things, uh, some habits die hard. And for the U.S., uh, I mean, uh, going after food sovereignty and bringing about drug trafficking programs and making sure that any basic sort of social democratic system uh, is out of the question in the global south is just a, a long term solution to the the contradictions that that our system faces internally.
0: Yeah, I mean, we could obviously spend many hours talking about this stuff. Uh, this is this is what I do every day. But just before we conclude here, I'll say, you know, I was in Honduras on the 10th anniversary of the coup in June 2019, and I produced an interview with with uh, Jose Manuel Salaya, the overthrown president. And he also said a few important details in that interview. He said that He was threatened by the Bush administration, even before Obama came in, saying that you cannot have relations with Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. And the key turning point was him joining the ALBA, the Bolivarian Alliance, which this is an economic alliance in Latin America aimed at at removing the United States from trade agreements basically the u.s wants to be the intermediary in all trade in latin america it doesn't want intra it doesn't want latin american trade uh between latin american nations between you know inter-american trade and the alba has also aimed at at ending u.s dollar dominance in the region the alba created a new currency called the sucre for trade in between different nations it was largely used by venezuela and president rafael correa who was, of course, betrayed by likely CIA asset, Lenny Moreno, who was his vice president, who did a, a complete 180, became a right-winger, and withdrew Ecuador from the ALBA. And then, of course, immediately after the US-backed 2019 coup in Bolivia, Bolivia left the ALBA. And, uh, of course, after the 2009 US-backed coup in Honduras, Honduras left the ALBA. And, of course, the ALBA includes Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, um, Caribbean nations. and. In that interview, he also said that John Negroponte was who, the man who began, of course, in the Bush administration and someone who oversaw the Contra death squads in Nicaragua in the 1980s. Uh, John Negroponte started the coup in motion. And then, of course, when Hillary Clinton came in in the, in the first Obama administration as the head of State Department, she carried the coup out. Um, but just, just before we conclude here, you know, uh, Seamus, I'm glad you mentioned Juan Orlando Hernandez. Uh, who's known in Honduras and Latin America overall as Ho, J-O-H, which you pronounce Ho. Um, I I just did a a separate report, a video at Multipolarista, um, and a podcast after reading through John Bolton's book, um, after he made those comments on CNN, you know, it's perfect for our discussions about, you know, this criminality where John Bolton casually says in this interview on CNN with Jake Tapper on July 12th, oh yeah, uh, I have organized coups. It's very difficult work, I'm just casually admitting it. And of course, he mentions Venezuela. Well, I went through his book, his memoir, um, The Room Where It Happened, and I, and I showed all like the US role in the, in the coup in Venezuela. But I was reading through it for this video yesterday, and I came across this hilarious moment, which is a good funny note to end on. This is from, this is from John Bolton's book, The Room Where It Happened. Uh, he's, he's talking about he has an entire chapter dedicated to the coup in Venezuela, and he's talking about how he was praising Honduras because Honduras recognized Juan Guaido as fake president of Venezuela. This is the U.S. coup puppet, and he says, "I also met in my office with Honduran President Juan Hernandez. His actual name is Juan Orlando, uh, but anyway, Juan Orlando Hernandez." And Bolton says he was similarly optimistic in contrast to the situation in Nicaragua it's very funny this has not aged well at all because of course now the the Biden administration extradited Juan Orlando Hernandez to the U.S. for trafficking thousands of tons of cocaine and machine guns and his brother Tony Hernandez Antonio Hernandez is already in prison and he personally got a million dollars from El Chapo Guzman and use that money to rig the Honduran election, to steal the election on behalf of his brother from the right-wing National Party, Juan Orlando Hernández. So I mean, this was of course a bipartisan operation, Juan Hernández became president under Obama, so Obama supported him and of course Vice President Joe Biden supported him. There's photos of Biden uh, smiling with Juan Orlando Hernández announcing his plan for Central America and of course Trump supported Ho as well. but. Another quick note before we conclude, you know, just because I'm on the subject of John Bolton's book, um, there's also a a funny thing here where he mentions who his role models are at the beginning of the book. And he says he doesn't like labels because what he's clearly referring to is he doesn't like being labeled as a neocon because, you know, John Bolton is the ARC neocon. He was the director of of the um, project for the New American Century. So he says, he says, foreign policy labels are unhelpful, except to the intellectually lazy. So he doesn't like being called a neocon, but he said, if pressed, I like to say my policy was pro-American. I followed Adam Smith and economics. I doubt he's even read Adam Smith. Edmund Burke and society, the Federalist papers on government and a merger of Dean Acheson and John Foster Dulles on national security. (laughs) So I mean, uh, for people who... Can I just
1: just add that he also mentions Barry Goldwater there? And if you're going to say, like, okay, uh, Edmund Burke, Dean Acheson, John Foster Dulles, Barry Goldwater, I believe that that is what the kids would call the nightmare blunt rotation. And I I can't think of a worse group than that, and yet there it is.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, for people who have listened to the first part of the series, they're going to be... They probably already know who Dean Acheson is, and certainly John Foster Dulles are, and those names are going to be etched into your minds by the end of this series. I mean, for me, it really reflects the fact that John Bolton, architect of the Iraq war, who has called for a preemptive strike on nuclear-armed North Korea, who constantly calls for bombing Iran, the fact that he, when he is given an opportunity in his own book to name his political mentors he names dean Atcheson and john foster Dulles. well i mean he just makes a point for us so job job done like <laughs> any final thoughts before you wrap up
1: i think we should leave on that that's pretty uh that's pretty profound and uh, I, i'm glad we were able to cover cover empire this way and it was actually kind of fun so that's a good sign
0: yeah i mean we could spend many hours on this of course we'll we'll be talking about these topics much more in the future, but I'll say that uh, if anyone who wants to support the series, uh, they should go to Patreon.com/americanexception and also Patreon.com/multipolarista. Join, uh, join, become patrons. Uh, of course, this show will be available uh, for patrons on both of those programs, and then uh, you can also find the other parts of the series. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. This is the Empire in the Deep State series. Uh, I was with joined by Aaron Good and joined by Seamus McGinnis, and we'll see you all next time.